So today we're going to read uh, a bit of uh, Galatians 5 from the Apostle Paul and a couple things before we start. Uh, Paul is known as the theologian of grace or the apostle of grace. Uh, the word grace uh, is the Greek word charis. Uh, that word appears 153 times in the New Testament. 88 of those times are in Paul's letters. That means of all the New Testament authors, Paul by himself is responsible for almost 60% of the use of the word charis or grace. Uh, in the New Testament, there are many Greek words that are translated into English as the word joy or rejoicing. Uh, there's agalialis, euphrosine, makarios, kara, those are just a few, some main examples. These words and others are used 326 times in the New Testament to describe joy or the act of rejoicing. Now think about what that means. That means that the word joy appears in the New Testament over twice as many times as the word grace. And the use of joy in the New Testament accounts for less than a third of its use throughout all of scripture. And of all the uses of the word joy in the New Testament, Paul is responsible for 40% of them, more than any other author. I think this makes him also the theologian of joy. And you might notice, even looking at the screen, those two Greek words, uh, grace, charis, and then the most commonly used word for joy is kara, you may notice that they're very similar. It's because they come from the same root word. That tells us they are very close, that there's an intentional connection between these two ideas of grace and joy, and that shouldn't be lost on us as we read scripture and as we talk about joy today. So this is the third week of our summer series. We're calling it Bear Fruit. And just like Sabrina said last week, uh, that cluster of grapes that's held in the right hand of that fuzzy, fuzzy lovable bear, whose name is still up for debate, um, it is probably the best image for fruit that we have as we walk through this series. Sabrina said it last week. Grapes grow not as individual grapes, but they grow in clusters, and they grow attached to a vine. Now, those clusters of grapes are only made up of grapes, Right? but each of them are individual grapes. So in the same way, the fruit of the spirit is one fruit that's made up of nine different parts, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So as we begin today to talk about one particular grape, <laughs> this joy grape, we're gonna talk about what it is and what it isn't. Uh, I wanna give a little more context to why Paul tells us about this, to what he's actually writing in this book and in this chapter. In the first week, I read Galatians 5, 13 through 26, but this week, in good Star Wars fashion, I want to go backwards and read the prequel. So we're going to read verses 1 through 12. I appreciate the subtle laughter. That means some of you get it. Okay, that's good. Uh, I want to show you. I want to do that because I want to show you why Paul is writing. Paul is actually fighting a battle. He is not writing this sweet passage to us from the context of peace. There's a war going on in this church. He's fighting a battle. I want to show you that battle, and then I want to show you why the culmination of his argument is this famous passage that lists the nine individual attributes of the one fruit of the Spirit. I think that this is really the best way to understand what Paul and the New Testament authors mean by joy. So you need to know that there was an argument in the early church. Uh, Paul, the other Jewish disciples, their master Jesus, they were all preaching this gospel of grace. They were not teaching the law of Moses, and that was causing serious trouble. We sometimes idealize the early church, but y'all, they were just as messed up as we are. They fought just as much as we did. They split. 
they had just as much drama as we do. The problem is that until the arrival of Jesus, the law was the only means by which God's people could practice their relationship with God. So for Jews who were becoming Christians, from their perspective, salvation apart from the works of the law, it just wasn't possible. So there's a question that the New Testament is introducing. It's this question, are we saved by grace through faith or are we saved by obedience to the law? Which one is greater? The grace through Christ or the law given through Moses? This argument in part is what got the Jews to get the Roman authorities to put Jesus up on that cross in the first place. Because by opening the door to a relationship with God through grace rather than through the works of the law, Jesus and his disciples were challenging not the Jewish faith, but they were challenging the practice of their religion. And if we know anything from human history, anytime you start challenging the practice of someone's religion, things go sideways. Now, the way this played out often for Paul, for his ministry, and definitely here in the church in Galatia, was very specific and awkward. (laughs) Um, Much of this argument was centered around the idea of circumcision. Sorry, parents. (laughs) But uh, this literal mark that one was living in obedience to the law. There were Jewish Christians who were known as Judaizers because they were demanding that converted Gentile Christians, they were saying you're not really saved until you also take this mark. And Paul has some strong words for them. So let's read what he says. This is Galatians 5, uh, 1 through 8, and then we'll tag verse 12 because it's funny. All right, you'll see. Uh, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. And remember, just for a second, this is in the context of Jewish religion, not modern healthcare, okay? (laughs) Okay, so he goes on to say, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you? (laughs) That's literally a pun in Greek, by the way. That's a very intentional pun in the Greek. (laughs) Who cut in on you by keeping you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Um, In the Greek, it literally says, I want them to go all the way and cut the whole thing off. (laughs) It's literally what it says. Our English translations, as they often do, they take some pretty coarse, rough Greek language and they make it all more family friendly until your pastor tells you what it originally said. So anyway, um, all right, so. All that. What does this have to do with joy? Uh, Let me read to you something else. This is how one author says it. He says, this Christian life is a life of joyful freedom. Since with the coming of Christ, law has been superseded by grace. In contrast to his opponents in Galatia, Paul boldly declared his reliance upon the cross and all it stood for. 
Those who have come to experience God's grace, as Paul had done, know that by standing firm in their faith, they can continue to celebrate the Christian life as a festival of joy in perfect freedom from all anxious worries and fears. I want you to imagine a religion. Imagine you're part of a religion that demands the observance of 613 laws as the means by which you hope to find salvation. Christ came to bear that burden, to make that law complete, to free Israel from that burden, and it was a means of grace. He did it to give them freedom. Imagine that you're part of a religion that's full of laws and it defines salvation, what they call attaining paradise, as living a life that is at least 50.1% good. That's the burden that's borne by our Muslim friends around the world. And how could they possibly know? How could you ever measure whether or not you've been at least 50.1% good? And they will tell you they can't. They just have to wait and see what happens. Christ came to free them from that anxious burden. Imagine a belief system where the end goal is non-existence. (laughs) That you do good in the world so that in the end you can cease to exist. Christ came to free those committed to those philosophies and religions from a hopeless existence. The Christian life is a festival of joy. Perfect freedom from from all anxious worries and fears. Last week, Sabrina shared this deep biblical understanding of love, that love is not simply the absence of anger and hate. It's freedom from a world filled with the kind of anger and hate that divides us. It gives us the freedom to love, to be united with God and united with one another. So in the same way, joy is not the absence of anxiety and fear. Joy is the freedom we experience even in a world filled with anxiety and fear. It's the ability to live in this broken, anxious, fearful world without giving our soul to it, without giving our allegiance to it. And we know this, uh, we live in a free country, right? But our freedom doesn't mean that things like oppression and injustice no longer exist, right? We know they exist. Our freedom just means that we've made a choice. We've chosen to live in such a way that we don't give oppression and injustice control over our lives. And that we've chosen not to resort to use oppression and injustice to control the lives of others. The fruit of the Spirit is all about freedom. And as Paul says it, in a world that's filled with sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, in the midst of all of that, Paul tells us the fruit of the Spirit gives us the freedom to experience a radically different kind of life, even here and now, as we wait for that life to be made complete. So Galatians 5 was not written in the midst of peace. It was a response to real conflict within the church, a real divisive battle. And Paul is really worked up about it. He's very serious 
about the gospel's power to give us the freedom to be led by the fruit of the Spirit and experience real joy. C.S. Lewis agrees a couple thousand years later. And he has a lot to say about joy, about what it is, about what it's not. Some of you may have read his most famous work. It's uh, his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. Uh, It's a book that tells about his conversion from intellectual atheism to an active and living faith in Jesus. But that's not the only place that he talks about joy. This is from Letters to Malcolm. Uh, He writes this, uh, and this took me a little while as well, but I didn't want to paraphrase C.S. Lewis. (laughs) So if you want to spend some time with it, email me, I'll send it to you. He says, I do think that while we are in this valley of tears, cursed with labor, hemmed round with necessities, tripped up with frustrations, doomed to perpetual plannings, puzzlings and anxieties, certain qualities that must belong to the celestial condition, have no chance to get through, can project no image of themselves except in activities which, for us here and now, are frivolous. Dance and game are frivolous. They are unimportant down here. For down here is not their natural place. Here, they are a moment's rest from the life we were placed here to live. But in this world, everything is upside down. Joy is the serious business of heaven. What he's saying is that when we dance and sing and play, we are experiencing the frivolous things of heaven. The real things that really have no place here. They don't bring us income, they don't sustain us, they don't give us anything that gets us through to the next day except a glimpse of the joy that's awaiting us forever. But all of that in the context of the fact that God is not just sitting up there laughing all day, he conducts his most serious business. Not in the context of anxiety and fear, but in joy. The most serious business of God is reconciling all things to himself, including you and me. That means that even in the most extreme trials and suffering that this broken world can throw at us, we can find that joy because God conducts his most serious business in the context of joy. One of the clearest examples of this is found in Hebrews 12. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus willingly endured the suffering of the cross because of the joy that awaited him. The joy that he would find in the end. The joy that through the cross, freedom has come and God's people can be redeemed and restored in relationship to him. There was no joy found on the cross itself. There was no joy. But true joy, the freedom from the anxieties and fears of this world is possible only because of the cross and what happened in that tomb three days later. The fact that it was found empty. You see, I think the reason that the Greek language uses so many words to describe things like love and joy is because it's trying to show us that love and joy, the whole fruit of the Spirit, they are more powerful, more constant, and more enduring than any circumstance or situation that we can face here on earth. And that truth has really practical and profound implications for us here and now. 
Beth told you about Paul's time in prison. Listen to this. He's talking to the church in Corinth about it. He says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet what? Always rejoicing. That's not a man who's heard about suffering. He's writing that in the midst of it. Jesus himself in Matthew 5, he goes on to say something that sounds just as crazy. He says this, Blessed are you when people insult you. That word blessed is the word makarios. I told you earlier, makarios is another word for joy. You will find joy when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So rejoice and be glad in it because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you were being persecuted by a lost and broken world, you might just be on the right side. Now, from the perspective of this broken world, this is not the kind of life that we're hoping to live, right? This is not the good life that the world is trying to sell us. But we know that Paul and Jesus are both just describing the realities of this life, whether we hope to live it or not. And I prefer a story that tells me the truth, not a story that gives me false hope and just tells me what I want to hear. Y'all, this life is full of persecution, of suffering, pain, hunger, disrespect, poverty, pandemic, injustice. That is just the truth. And until God makes all things new, that's the way it's going to be. I'm sorry, but it's the truth. The good news is it's not the whole truth because the truth is made complete when we remember that both Paul and Jesus are modeling for us the promise that especially in the midst of the terrible realities of this broken world, we can rejoice. We can find real joy because the gospel gives us freedom from the power that this broken world tries to have over us. Y'all, our friends around the world who experience great poverty, you know what they do? They dance and sing and play, even in the midst of it. I've played soccer with kids and adults in a field in Honduras. The first year, with their ball of trash held together by duct tape, the second year brought one soccer ball. It was a party when they saw that soccer ball. And we played soccer in that field, dodging pigs and cows and chickens and all the stuff they leave behind. <laughs> and it was pure joy. One of my friends, Eric, was there. He played goalie. And we were all terrible. We were playing a bunch of Honduran kids. They were awesome. We were terrible. But he was good. And they called him the white wall. But they thought he was calling him the white whale. <laughs> I have danced and sung in the dirty streets of Peru with kids and adults. I even had the opportunity to worship and praise God through tears, standing with prisoners in Belize, many of whom had been there for years, having never even seen a judge. 
You know, some of the most joyful people that I've ever met are people who have suffered a lot. People who were still in the midst of that suffering. They can still enjoy the frivolous things of heaven even as they live here in this upside down world. Joy is a miracle that turns water into wine so that a bride and groom can laugh and dance and sing with their family as they celebrate their wedding, even though they're gonna wake up the next day living together in a community that's suffering under Roman injustice and oppression. Joy is knowing the horrific pain of childbearing ends in the miraculous delivery of new life into the world. Joy is confronting disease by remaining steadfast in spirit and in hope as your body and your mind both fight back. Joy is knowing that we are free, that we are not ruled by the suffering and the trials of this world even as we face them. Joy is knowing that the worst this world can do to us, death itself, has been overcome and overthrown. Y'all, I hope you hear in the tone of my voice, love, joy, peace, all of these fruit of the spirit, they are not weak. This is not weakness. The Christian life is not about weakness. This is the ultimate strength in all creation. Joy is defiant because it refuses to put its hope in the ways and the means of this world. I think about a story that I learned as a child in Sunday school, the story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You guys know that story, right? Bill, say it. Who is it? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's good. I gave you the Hebrew names. Bill gave you their Babylonian names, but it's okay. Those are the names that we're familiar with. Yeah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, friends of Daniel. They're all exiled, living under the rule of this other king in Babylon. This king thought a lot of himself, builds this massive statue made of gold demands that people, when they hear the flute play, that they bow down and worship. If they don't, they'll not just be executed, but they're burned. They're thrown in a fiery furnace just for his enjoyment. These three friends, they hear the flute play, they're in a crowd and they refuse to bow and worship. But before they're taken off to be executed, the king calls them to stand before him and defend themselves. He was the most powerful person in the world at the time, one of the most powerful men that has ever lived. And this is what those three nobodies said to him face to face. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. He's saying that face to face to the most powerful man in the world at the time. Our God is able to deliver in the end. He will deliver us from you. But even if you put us in that furnace, even if he doesn't save us in this moment, our joy will be made complete. We will not bow down and worship your idol of gold. There is defiance in faith. There is defiance in love. There is defiance in joy. And maybe you heard in their voice, wrongly accused, put to death for no reason. Yet they spoke to him face to face with peace, with patience, with kindness, with goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. 
The fruit of the Spirit are the only means by which we will ever overcome the troubles in this world. They are a gift. They're a means of grace. And they're offered to us by our loving Father through the power of his Spirit. So we've talked a lot about what joy is, but quickly before we finish, I do want to talk about what joy is not. And, and I do want to tell you, uh, so some of you, when you hear this the first time, you may have issues. Uh, so if you do, I just want to ask you, go home and listen to the podcast. And then if you still have issues, call Mark. <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. For real, I would love to have a conversation about it because I think it's really important. I truly believe that one of the great heresies of our time One of the most prevalent idols in our culture is the idol of happiness. I just want to be happy. I have to put myself and my happiness first. Y'all, that line of thinking is used to justify so many things. Some that are really difficult decisions, but sometimes it's just used to justify what is nothing more than a work of the flesh. It is a true heresy because it's a way of living in the world where who is at the very center? Me. Now I'm clearly defining happiness in a particular way. C.S. Lewis, the testimony of scripture, they both tell us that happiness is a fleeting emotion. It's momentary. It's actually a desire of the flesh that can never be made complete. It's an experience that we end up just chasing after. We're so willing to chase it that we're willing to bail on even our most serious commitments, just hoping to get that next fix of happiness because that's what it is. By this definition in our culture, it's a drug. So I have to tell you that using this particular definition of happiness, let's say something that most parents probably would never say, I don't want my kids to just be happy. I will never say about my kids whatever makes them happy. I want them to know real joy. I want them to intimately know that the Christian life is a festival of joy. It's the way to perfect freedom from all anxious worries and fears. And look, I want them to dance and sing and play games. I'm taking Benjamin to Honduras at the end of July for the first time. I can't wait for him to get schooled by some Honduran kids on the soccer field. (laughs) It's going to bring a lot of laughter to me. It's going to be great. I want them to enjoy the frivolous things of heaven. Here and now, even in this upside down world, I want to hear their laughter and see their smiles every day for the rest of my life. But I want their joy to be made complete. 117, 113, as they grow and become adults, I want them to have the strength that comes from the fruit of God's spirit, not the drug of passing happiness. I want them to have a strength that'll sustain them as they live every day in a world that's full of anger and hatred and injustice, a world that is full of trials and temptations and suffering. I wish that I could give them a world that was free from all of that. I wish I could, but y'all, we all know the truth. We can't, (laughs) that is not possible. So the best I can do, my responsibility is to prepare them to be people who can find joy and love and peace even in the midst of it. I want them to learn how to dance even in the midst of the storm. And the truth is they're practicing that right now. They're learning how to laugh and play even through their tears as their grandfather battles cancer. 
I want them to be ready for the time that they will most likely lay us to rest. This life is difficult, but does not mean that we cannot find joy. We must not be swayed and manipulated by this broken world's base desire for momentary happiness. We have to seek and receive real joy, the freedom that comes with a life that's guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Don't settle for taking from the world just so you'll be happy for a moment. Instead, bear fruit into the world. By the power of God's Spirit, And you can live a fruit-filled life that'll be a testimony to the good coming kingdom of God where one day all things will be made new. Our hope, our joy, our faith will be made complete and the only thing that will be left is what? The greatest of these is love. We can experience that in part even now, no matter the circumstance and situation that we are in. Amen? Let's pray. Father, that is good news, um, but it's also hard. It's kind of hard to believe sometimes. Um, So we pray as we always do uh, for the courage and the strength to trust you, to trust that what was just proclaimed of the gospel is true, to be obedient to the way that you call us to live that out into the world. We pray that you would show us Give us those signs that that fruit is growing in our lives. Equip us and empower us to be a people who can go out to a lost and broken world, who sees the tragedies happening every day and has no understanding, can't comprehend it, doesn't understand why it doesn't all just go away. Help us to be a people that can explain it and then give them good news and give them hope. Help them find peace and joy even as the world's falling apart around them. That is an impossible task without the power and guidance of your spirit. You've promised it. Pray that we would each receive it. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.